2: A weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry.
3: On today's program, we'll get reaction from a U.S. congressman and an invited guest of this week's State of the Union by President Donald Trump. We'll get updates on fiscal matters involving the Scranton School District, the Pennsylvania Lottery, and the revenue potential of recreational cannabis from Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale. And we'll learn about some changes at a Luzerne County organization that serves the blind and visually impaired as it notes its 100th anniversary. President Donald Trump gave his first State of the Union speech this week on Tuesday in Washington, laying out his accomplishments and vision for the future. We had the opportunity to speak with two people who heard the speech, and we got their reaction. Corporal Seth Kelly of the Pennsylvania State Police was an invited guest of 10th District Congressman Tom Marino. Last November, Corporal Kelly was badly wounded when he was shot by a motorist during a traffic stop along Route 33 in Plainfield Township. Trooper Kelly shared his thoughts with us the day after the speech
4: transpired for me due to an incident I was involved in approximately three months ago. Um, I was wounded in the line of duty. I was shot several times. And Tom Marino was kind enough to reach out to me and offer me an invitation to go see the State of the Union, which is a pretty uh, prestigious event and a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity.
3: I bet you said yes immediately, right? (laughs)
4: Yeah, it was uh, kind of a no-brainer. I didn't really have to think about it too much. It was uh, something I would definitely i never have an opportunity like this again.
3: You were not the only one, uh, Corporal Kelly, in that audience who had uh, displayed phenomenal bravery and courage during 2017. Did you have an opportunity to meet any of the people that the president highlighted last night in his remarks?
4: Fortunately, I was not lucky enough to meet some of them because there was some pretty incredible stories of some bravery and heroism that many people did throughout our nation last year. And uh, just hearing those stories again was uh so impressive it was I was awestruck.
3: tell me a little bit um, about uh, how you perceive this speech it's always different when you are there in person than when you see it on TV what struck you last night about those remarks or or what you felt being in um, the congressional chambers to see that
4: I personally thought it was a, a great great speech I mean I was very impressed with it just uh, him continuing with his objectives and moving forward what he thinks is best for our nation. And I, I personally thought it was an amazing speech. And to be able to see it in person it was uh, an unbelievable experience.
3: Did you have the opportunity to meet the president?
4: No, I was not lucky enough. But, um, you know, it was uh, just very impressive just to be in the same room with him.
3: I know that he often talks about law enforcement and that he often um, is, is pays tribute to people in law enforcement, and I think that's good. Um, What did you take away from that kind of feeling last night? Do you believe that he is somebody who can maybe redirect the focus onto law enforcement, that there are people like yourself each and every day who serve nobly and put their life on the line? Because that was a very serious incident that you were in, and I I read in the uh, paper that you saved yourself with a tourniquet, right?
4: Uh, Yes, Um, that's what I was told. you know, it started the life-saving process myself, uh, but you know the first responders that arrived on scene, um, the flight crew from Penn Star, and the trauma doctors from St. Luke's—they they finished that process. Um, you know, during the whole thing, I was told I lost nearly eighty-five percent of my total blood, um, which they you know helped bring me back on several occasions. But just to see the president talk about his uh, support for law enforcement. And just the support I saw from the community during my experience, it was uh, extremely humbling. Many times we hear a lot of negative press in regards to some of the bad things that happened in law enforcement, but uh, having an experience like this, the support we received from the community was amazing.
3: Yeah, and you had the opportunity, I know, to spend time with uh, Tom Marino and his staff down in Washington. What's it like to be in that kind of atmosphere as well? uh,
4: Definitely out of my element, but Congressman Marino, extremely grounded, down-earth man, and uh, I was very impressed with uh, him and his wife. They were very friendly and open and uh, welcomed us with open arms, and uh, his staff was extremely friendly as well, and My wife and I just had an overall great experience down there.
3: I see that uh, you are a native of of Honesdale, right? Correct. Uh, What did your family think about this? You know, they
4: thought it was uh, an awesome opportunity to be invited to such an event such as the the State of the Union. And, uh, you know, they were just very proud and uh, very grateful that, you know, I'm still here to be able to attend such an event.
3: Yeah, I I think we're all glad that you came through this, and it it just highlights, Corporal Kelly, the the danger of things like, you know, it's described in many news stories as a routine traffic stop, what you went through, but I guess nothing in your line of work is truly routine, right?
4: Yeah, that, that statement of like me personally, when I hear someone say about a routine traffic stop, there is absolutely nothing routine about it, because It's uh, probably one of the most dangerous things that an officer can do and something that they do on a daily basis. And, you know, these brave men and women, we just go out there and do our jobs and, you know, hopefully do it to the best of our abilities just so we can make sure that at the end of the day we come home to the ones we love, you know, such as my wife.
3: Yeah, you had your your wife, uh, Philomena, with you yesterday. What did she think of everything?
4: Uh, You know, she thought it was amazing as well to be honored by... Congressman Marino to be invited to such an event, and uh, she thought it. She thought it was uh, just an awesome opportunity, and we couldn't pass it up.
3: Corporal Seth Kelly, I'm glad you're okay, and I'm glad that uh, your your life is, is moving forward. Are you back to work yet?
4: Uh, not yet. I, I have a quite a long road ahead of me as far as uh, getting back to where I need to be to be able to make sure, you know, I'll be able to get back and do the job that I love. But uh, I'm gonna get there, and I'm just listening to my doctor's orders and. Uh, Going to follow whatever they tell me to do to to the letter. Uh, I just want to make sure that uh, I get back to where I need to be, so that way um, I'll get back to full duty.
3: U.S. Congressman Lou Marletta of the 11th District also checked in after the speech to share his impressions.
5: Well, I, I thought this this speech by President Trump was one of the best that I've that I've seen. Um, you know, he was a, he was a cheerleader for for America, and I felt like you know he. Uh, he spoke so much from the heart and directly, once again, to the American people. I never remembered, and I don't know if there ever was, a State of the Union where the president uh, referred to people in the gallery as often as he did to uh, to symbolize uh, points that he was trying to make, whether it was uh, honoring our law enforcement, uh, our veterans, our military, uh, our moms in and, 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 and paid family leave, uh, You know, it was just when he, you know, the the defector from North Korea when he stood and held held those crutches up, you know, it was just chilling, Uh, you know, how this president, you could see the pride in America that this president had. And I I have to tell you, Sue, it it was uh, very disturbing for me to sit there and watch watch what I saw uh, from others, uh, from the Democrats. At, at a time when the president was reaching over and saying, "Let's work together in a bipartisan way," when, when you can't stand up when the president talks about African American unemployment at its at its all time low, what is there not to not to be not to like about that? When, when he when he talked about uh, the Hispanic unemployment at an all time low, what what is it there that disturbs you that that, that you would not stand? Uh, for the for the parents that lost the, their their children to somebody who was in the country illegally, Where, where's where's the compassion for Americans who are affected, or if our military and I could go on and on. Steve Scalise, uh, what was it that was so disturbing? You know, when the president talked about family, about in God we trust, and our military and our law enforcement, that could disturb you so much that that you would literally not get up uh, to agree.
3: Well, these are your colleagues, Lou. Is it, what what they do? Is that how they are all the time, or, or is that just how they are when uh, television cameras are around? I don't. I don't know. You work with them. What's up with them?
5: I I, I think this is where we are at this time in in uh, in our history right now, where uh, you know, and, and I I believe the proof will be, you know, two things will be coming up. Uh, number one, infrastructure that that we should all agree that, that we need to come together and, and work out a plan to, to rebuild America's infrastructure, because it's going to create good jobs. People will make good money, and they'll spend it in our local economies. Yet we you know, we, we all know that we have to fix our infrastructure. We don't let our house fall apart, and, and we shouldn't let our country's infrastructure either. So we should come together there. And, and, and I believe the most glaring example will be when a president went from 800,000 DACA recipients and, and increased it to 1.8 million, uh, and that's still not good enough to, to get the Democrats to say we're willing to sit at the table and work out a compromise, then just what is it that, that they want? I don't believe they want the issue to go away. I, I honestly believe that they want to use this issue. Um, if you're, if you're, your goal is is to help African Americans get a job and have a better life, then why wouldn't you be proud that more of them have done that? And so I, I just think this is where we are right now, unfortunately. When you, when you hate the president more than you love America, I think it's time to throw these people out.
3: Uh, now, Lou, with, with the four pillars part of the speech, which obviously you listen to closely, uh, President Trump said uh, not everybody is going to get what they want out of this. So what, what are you willing to concede to make this happen?
5: Well, this is a, this is a big leap. Uh, you know, this is a big leap, what he's talking about. However, for someone like myself, who's, who's fought this issue from my time that I was a mayor, uh, having an opportunity to finally solve this problem once and for all, I believe should bring everybody to the table willing with a willingness to listen and a willingness to compromise if we can solve this once and for all. Now, there are a couple issues that I have with with that plan, with the president's plan. And one is, there has to be security first. It can't be a promise. We can't have any kind of legalization with a promise to the American people that we'll, we'll get to fixing the borders, because that was then in 1986, and here we are in 2018 with the same problem. And I don't want to be part of anything that leaves the next generation with this problem. So that's first for me, number one. We have to have security first before we talk about legalization. Two, uh, the president went from 800,000 to 1.8 million. <clears throat> I'm very interested in, in how that that happened. Who what, who are we including? And if this universe of people that, that we're, we're talking about legalizing, what kind of screenings, uh, uh, background, checks and screenings were done uh, to make sure and assure the American people that we're not letting any gang members in. I don't want one in. I don't want one, I don't want one gang member in, in the United States that's going to destroy or hurt uh, an American because we didn't do our job in, in making sure uh, that we didn't let people s- slip through the cracks. I do know under the Obama administration, when when they were talking about a pathway to citizenship, the way they did a background screening on on you is you just had to send your paperwork into Washington, and some bureaucrat on the fifth floor of an office building looked at it and either approved it or disapproved it. And there was so much fraud uh, involved that we were just literally not really doing a background check. You have to do a field check. That's the way you do a, a, a proper screening. You need to do face-to-face interviews. You need to go back to the country of origin of that person to see if they have any ties with any either gang, gang members or, or, or terrorist groups. That's the way you assure the American people that we're doing this properly. So that's the part of it that I'm going to uh, pay some attention to. But I'm willing to sit at the table and listen because uh, there's something in here for everybody. And, and the ones who should benefit the most are the American people, and it should be there should be a deal that that makes our immigration uh, policy work for Americans and is also good for the immigrants that come.
3: Okay, and it sounds that the the, the process that you want uh, for 1.8 million would be pretty rigorous, and I know that there is a suggested. Uh, Twelve-year time frame to get this done. Um, will will it take twelve years for everybody, or is it flexible? And it does sound like it's going to be costly too. So who's going to pay for the field checks and the face-to-face interviews and all that? Yeah,
5: well, it, it, there is going to be a process, and and uh, you know that's why for me it, there needs to be there needs to be security first so that you don't have another 800,000 people here. You know, what good is it if we do this? I mean, just to put it in layman's terms, it, it, you know, if you had a big hole in the roof of your house, you know, as much as you would like to, but you're not going to go out and replace the carpet and the furniture until, until the hole in the roof is fixed. That's just common sense. And, you know, if we really want to fix this problem, or if people are looking at this for votes or, you know, for their own elections, you know, then I think that's the wrong thing to do. You know, I look at it, it's, there 's something here for everyone and and if you really want to solve the problem let's do it but let's do it correctly there's no reason that the greatest country on earth can't do something like this to say okay we're going to there's a process in how we do this and if people are willing to accept uh, a legalization of, of those that that are in the country illegally, be it at no fault of their own i don't want people in that group who 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 have forged documents to get in that group and, and cheat the system and fraud the system. There's too much fraud in our government to begin with, and American people are fed up with it. And, you know, this government should be able to do this in a, in a way that assures we're not letting anybody in the country who shouldn't, and this problem will never happen again and we'll be a safer and better country for it. Now, if the Democrats don't want to come to the table, then I think that answers the question that they, they really don't want to solve this problem they just wanted this issue to be out here so that they can use it in an election.
3: Let's talk a little bit about this uh, memo, which may or may not come out. Um, did you see it, Lou? I,
5: I did, Sue. I I, um, I read the memo as well as um, the 10-page uh, Democrat uh, counter memo. So I did read both of them, yes.
3: Should, uh, should it be released? Should both of them be released? What do you think?
5: I believe the American people need to see it.
3: Okay, both or, or just the one?
5: I have no problem with both. You know, I have no problem with that. You know, the best, you know, sunlight is the best way to be transparent and let the American people, when they read what I read, uh, let them determine uh, what 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 steps need to be taken next. It was alarming, and I believe uh, I believe it needs, the the public has a right to see it.
3: What if the, what about the FBI saying they have grave concerns?
5: Well, you know, those concerns have changed. Uh, you know, over the past few days, you know, originally uh, there was uh, there was concerns that their methods uh, and 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 uh, uh, process and, and secrets would be uh, exposed, which uh, they have. That will not be the case, and and now uh, they want to stop uh, this from being public because of. Their concern that there was there are uh, circumstances that are omitted that would change the uh, the the the, uh, the meaning of of what people are seeing. Um. Uh, you know, personally, after what I read, uh, I would like the public to be able to determine themselves themselves um, for themselves what uh, w- whether or not they not they believe that anything. Any crimes have been committed by our government. We, you know, we. We have to drain this in draining the swamp that means reassuring the American people that that their government and their their highest uh, office of law enforcement uh, is literally has blinders on it that that because you are someone who thinks they are better or higher or more powerful or richer that there's a different set of laws for you than the average American.
3: Okay. Oh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll see how that uh, ends up. Somebody uh, wants to know about what happened with you and President Trump at the end of the State of the Union. You were uh, shaking hands, and you said something to the president, and uh, Trump said to you, Lou, get it done. Is that an accurate portrayal of what happened?
5: That's part of it. Uh, yeah, that, that was part of it. He, he, had, he had a few other uh, things that he said to me uh, prior to that. Uh, but he asked how I was doing, and, and then there was a small conversation uh, prior to that. And I'm, you know, I'm looking forward to working with with uh, with the president. I'm i uh, very active in in, uh, in in other issues that uh, I hope to be working with the administration and, and Ivanka. I'm, um, so you know, I'm excited about about what we're going to be doing this year. I'm excited about you know the fact that having a relationship with the administration is. I believe is good, uh, you know, for people that I represent, uh, or, or wherever it is, because because the issues that are important to us, you know, there's nothing better than getting it to the person at the top if you're trying to get something done.
3: That's U.S. Congressman Lou Barletta of the 11th Congressional District giving us his opinions regarding this week's State of the Union. You are listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications.
2: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
3: Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale made headlines when he upbraided members of the Scranton School Board last year for not doing enough to stave off a deficit that has led to the prospect of teacher layoffs due to a $4.1 million budget hole. He's also been public about his support for recreational marijuana as a possible source of revenue for the state. He spoke to us earlier this week prior to a Harrisburg press conference about school bus drivers who might not be legally able to do their jobs. We're
6: coming out with our audit of the uh, the Lancaster School District today, which may not mean a lot to your area, but there is a, a broader issue that's going on that is school districts are not doing enough. They're not following their requirement to do their necessary background checks not some districts are not um to protect kids and make sure um the school bus drivers are allowed to legally be driving the bus so that's as much as i can tell you right okay. now but that's that's going to be the t- one of the main topics um at the press conference
3: today well uh, of course that information may make others in other school districts across the state question these practices or make parents question the practices, I guess is the better way to frame that up.
6: Uh, yeah, well, I, I think certainly um, after today you're going you're gonna to have some questions asked by parents. That much I can guarantee you. Um, beyond that, um, the, the message that we really want to send be, beyond just this, in this one particular school district is that when you contract out um, your school bus transportation, it still is the requirement of the district to make sure the people driving the bus are legally allowed to do it.
3: Okay. Well, that's good to know. Now, uh, your audit of the Scranton School District is part of a page one story today. In uh, our local newspaper, there is a school board member who is asking uh, the district attorney's office in Lackawanna County... To investigate how a mechanic received uh, health insurance for 12 years and didn't work yep. for the school district, um, I thought last time we talked, Gene, that you had indicated that the information you got from the audit was sent and shared with other agencies. Am I right to say that?
6: Yeah, I believe that the, the, this is, I think, a formal ask by a member of the school board, the district attorney, and the state attorney general did receive our audit, and you know what they're doing with with it, I can't comment on, right. and I, they obviously have their appropriate. Procedures, but they do have it, and um, I know that I, I know specifically that they 're taking it seriously
3: and um, do, do you by the way, this is a, a question that I think deserves an answer. Does there have to be a formal ask for something to take place no. or is no it does a- not
6: uh, I think that um, I think certainly when an elected official um, wants to make that point to a prosecutor, I think it's appropriate. But no, it, you, you don't need an elected official. frankly, You don't need anyone um, to ask a district attorney or an attorney general to investigate something. If they have, you know, any, uh, they can start an investigation simply because of their own suspicions um, and then they take it from there.
3: Uh, looking in on what's going on up there where they're facing this gaping deficit and they are looking at uh, mass layoffs, et cetera, uh, what do you think about to what they've, they've done so far from your perspective Because when you were here You were very terse with them And I'm hoping that they're listening to what you had to say
6: there are, um, I, I think some of the new board members that they've put in, and I think some of the, some of the new leadership they've put into the board, um, I think are steps in the right direction. Look, obviously, there's going to be some pain there because of what um, previous boards have done. And it wasn't just the last board. It's been, you know, a, you know, a building 16-year problem. Um, but I do think that they're, they're starting to at least come to grips with it. Um, and I do think some of the new leadership and some of the new board members, uh, I think they've put some very qualified people on, some very qualified people have stepped up for the community. So that is all positive. But there's going to be some real negative consequences that come out of this. There's no question about it. But it's a very, very tough financial hole. And in the short run, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Hopefully um, some smart decisions can be made so that the kids of the future don't continue to be hurt by some of the horrible decisions that were made over the last 10 to 15 years.
3: And of course, the taxpayers who live up there who really have been, uh, they've suffered enough. And it's hard to think that uh, the sins of the past, might come back to affect them, too.
6: There's no no question about it. At the end of the day, who's picking up the bill is the taxpayer.
3: And uh, I know there was talk about uh, further state involvement, but I don't think that uh, the Scranton School District has gone down that route yet.
6: Um, I don't foresee that happening. Um, I can be proven wrong on that, but I don't foresee that happening. I know that is an absolute last resort for the state, and also the track record of it working is is very shaky at best.
3: All right. I do want to talk to you about uh, the the legalization of, of marijuana in Pennsylvania, maybe down the road. But first, I can't resist um, because our Pennsylvania lottery has always been such a source of fascination for people who, I, I would say, lose it a lot and, and think, oh, my gosh, uh, something is up with this. Your office has gotten involved with uh, the frequency of certain – people who win the lottery. And I know... Where we live, a lot of people play the lottery. So could, could you talk a little bit about your involvement with that? Yeah, there
6: was there was a report about some people that really were winning to a degree that was beyond a statistical likelihood. Look, it's obviously anyone that plays the lottery. There's you, you know, the odds are against you. I mean, I think most people understand that. So what we did was, uh, you know, first of all, met with the attorney general and his team. We had a you know strategy discussion on it, and then you know my team and I we met with the lottery. We looked over their procedures and the most I can tell you on that, well, not that I mean, I'm more than happy to talk about it more, too, but is that we are confident that they have, from when those cards get printed in Georgia, how they get boxed, the whole computer security process, to how they randomly box them, to how they randomly ship them out to the vendors all over the state, and the technology that they've done to improve the cards, take out sort of this micro-scratching, which was a problem, so they've upgraded their, their a lot of their security measures. We are confident that they have a very secure system. I'm not here to tell you that nobody in the world can crack the system. I'm just, what our review was is that we we are confident that they have a thorough security system.
3: What is micro-scratching
6: Micro-scratching, which, by the way, is someone who, look, I, I, I'm not a gambler, um, uh, you know, but, I, but so this one was new to me. But micro-scratching was an ability for um, somebody to, um, whether it be the vendor, someone selling the card in the store, or someone that bought it, you can, in a sense, the micro-scratching was you could do it in a way where you could find out if you had won or not, and the naked eye could not pick up whether you were actually peeling any of that. So these are the scratch-off cards. There was a way to do it before they changed the technology that you sense could scratch it to a point where you could see if you'd won or not, and the naked eye couldn't pick up that you had done it.
3: This is something I've never heard of.
6: Oh, believe me. There was news to me, too. I mean, one of the things that I I can write down um, sort of when I leave office, what did you learn? One of them is that there was a process called micro-scratching.
3: And I could see where people would, they would think very carefully about this. Okay, there's this place in Georgia that prints them, and, you know, then they're boxed and whatever. And is is there any way that there are people who could be in cahoots that would possibly know about this, or does the process get so convoluted that there's no way to tell where the winners go?
6: The only way I think, and by the way, so the, one of the big questions we asked them was the security of the actual computer system. The, the way, you, you basically... From the idea of knowing what the card is, you'd have to find a way to crack into the computer system in Georgia, and then be able to track it to where that card is actually sold, and then buy the right card. Which, you know, is is the the odds of someone being able to do that and not getting caught are extremely, extremely, extremely um,
3: slim. Well, that is fascinating stuff. Now let's talk about. Uh, your advocacy on behalf of uh, legalizing marijuana. We understand, obviously, the the medical marijuana procedure is underway in the state, and uh, that is going to become a reality. When you say legalizing marijuana, specifically, what do you mean?
6: I mean, re- it, it would have a regulation and tax uh, process simple, similar to what Colorado is doing. Colorado um, had a ballot initiative. All the elected officials were actually against it, When I say all, I mean, all the statewide elected officials were against it, Democrat and Republican, and when it was put to the voters, it was an overwhelmingly um, bipartisan vote among all the voters to legalize it. The state last year brought in $129 million in new tax revenue, while opioid addiction and teen usage went down. I think how we've handled drug policy in the United States over the last 30 to 40 years has had many mistakes, and how we go about regulating uh, marijuana usage, I think, is, is one of them, and I believe the time to regulate and tax it and allow new businesses to open up, have it appropriately regulated. No one under 21 could be allowed to use it, um, and I think th- that we're now seeing from the nearly 10 states that have legalized it, New Jersey is going to soon follow them, that the benefits greatly outweigh the negatives.
3: Okay. Because there is uh, some collateral, I guess, to consider in Colorado. There is a robust debate about whether or not Colorado has uh, gotten an influx of homeless population because of the...
6: Yeah, and and look, it's sort of in today's day and age um, with the rumor mill, all you need is sort of one homeless person walking somewhere in the United States and someone takes a picture of them, and then they put it on the Internet and go, see, this is what happens when Colorado does X. I mean, the the data is in, and the voters have made it clear they want this to continue going forward.
3: Okay. Um, Also, I guess we could look at... You you did mention a, a possibility of... Uh, staving off our incredibly horrendous opioid crisis in the state by the uh, legalization of marijuana. And uh, we know uh, historically that marijuana kills fewer people than opioids. But, uh, you know, addiction can be addiction. So do you worry about uh, creating Some problems with that. I know the money will come, obviously, but uh... well,
6: yeah. There's look, there's there's no 100% with any you know policy decision, and this would certainly marijuana would be one of them. You weigh the positives and the negatives. Marijuana is significantly less addictive than tobacco and alcohol. Um, You know, it does have some psychological addiction. There's no question about it, but significantly less addictive than alcohol and and cigarettes. And cigarettes, to me, are you know dramatically more dangerous than, than marijuana. Now, uh, are there some downsides? Of course. That's why you need to have an appropriate regulatory scheme that goes with this to make sure that again, youth aren't getting their hands on it. And this is a, a, a key point. In most of the states that legalize, and that's why I use Colorado as an example, teen usage actually went down because first of all, it's legal, so it takes away sort of the teen rebellious side of it. To the people selling it, just like you know when you're buying alcohol in a state store today, or now you can buy it at a sheets or some of these other stores. You have, to get, you have a reputable business that's selling it, and if they sell it to anyone that's a minor, they're going to lose their business license. So it actually helps keep it out of the hands of teams. But there's no question it can be bad for some people. Um, but when you weigh all the issues, I believe the positives greatly outweigh the negatives.
3: Another thing that you've been involved in a lot and in our area is getting into auditing of things like, you know, ambulance companies and, and other entities uh, across the state, are you noticing? how easily people have been able to steal from some yeah. of these entities. And I know there must be something, that, like a little bell that goes off in your head that says, why aren't people doing something else to stop the stealing? And I always think about double signing of checks and other things like that. But what can some of these, you know, volunteer entities, uh, soccer organizations, Little League, whatever, what, in your opinion, because you've seen so much of it, what can they do to kind of clamp down on this?
6: Well, we've actually put together a dvd that's on my went my website paauditor.gov where we help uh, we put it together to help volunteer fire relief associations and sort of anyone else can use it um to what are some of the proper techniques to make sure this can't happen because anytime you're dealing with cash anytime there's the possibility that someone can steal some of it so it's just it's just the nature of of i guess people uh, when cash is laying around so we have outlined on my website to a dvd um that some of the proper steps a lot of companies can take to make sure this doesn't happen
3: okay and i would hope that people certainly would go about and watch this because it is really chronic here and people often say it's because we have a casino but i don't know if that's all no
6: do. no it this happens in areas where there aren't yeah. casinos too it's It's what happens when people have access to a lot of cash without appropriate safeguards in place.
3: Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale joined us recently to discuss issues his office is handling. To learn more, visit www.paauditor.gov. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
2: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry.
3: It's been 100 years since the founding of the Greater Wilkes-Barre Association for the Blind, which has served many throughout a number of area counties, despite its name referring to a Luzerne County city. The agency recently rolled out a name change, Northeast Sight Services. But the mission remains prevention of vision loss and help for those who need it when they experience changes. Sarah Paperno is the president and CEO of the organization. We have
1: renamed the organization um, during its centennial year. We're going to now be known as Northeast Site Services. Uh, We're finding that a lot of people were um, not really seeking out our services because they were really deterred by the, the word blind. And so they were hearing that and not thinking that the services that we provide could really be of help to them. And only a small percentage of people are actually 100% blind, have no vision at all. So we were able to identify that that was an issue and that we weren't really having a lot of people come to us because they didn't feel like our services would help them. So we felt that the name change was the right time for that.
3: 100 years. Do you know anything about how this organization came to be in the first place, who the,
1: the founders were? We know that the founder started the organization in 1918, and her name is Arlene Phillips, and she was completely blind. And so she started the organization to help people to become more independent and live a more independent and fulfilling life. And I think she has definitely accomplished that and more. I mean, every year we grow as an organization and we um, add new programming and try new things. And I think that um, we've made her legacy fulfilling. What are you most proud of? with this
3: organization. What do you want the community to know about your work?
1: I think that we're most proud of the fact that we're moving forward with the times. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, I'm sure that no one thought that a vision resource center was even something that would ever happen because they didn't realize that technology was gonna grow as much as it has. And it really has. I mean, we see the kids that we have in our programs are using iPads to do everything. And so we're able to really bring that to people's lives and bring that to, you know, seniors and to adult clients. And I think that just really want to push for people and hope that people find, you know, something within the organization that they can use.
3: How much of a component has prevention become? It seems to me that some of the things that are done are are fairly successful in this day and age, right?
1: Yes. I mean, for prevention services, we do a lot. And I think that's another reason that we changed our name because Northeast Sight Services really encompasses that piece. The Association for the Blind didn't really say that we're doing anything for the prevention of blindness. So I think that this is a great way to kind of get the word out for that. We do all of the screenings at all of the preschools and the uh, kindergarten registrations. We uh, screen 5,000 kids a year and hundreds of them, we find, have, you know, vision issues. And I think it's very, very important to find those early because it really has an impact on their education. And some kids, it's a a matter of major medical issues. We had one child who had no vision in one eye and they found a tumor on his optic nerve. So had we not identified it as soon as we had, then there might have been some other, you know, major medical issues that he would have had to endure. So just along those lines, we were able to, you know, to do a lot for the community.
3: And then when you do find these issues, the good news is things can be done, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. And most of the kids just need glasses. You know, it's it's correctable. So we do advise that they go to their doctor. We also do have a program here for people who are low income. So if someone were to um, need to see an eye doctor and can't afford it because they don't have insurance or, um, you know, in our low income, then they're able to come here. And we are partner with local eye doctors to set them up with someone um, to with an eye doctor for a basic eye exam. And then there are people who can't afford eyeglasses. So we do have a low-cost prescription eyeglass program where we can help somebody to afford glasses. I mean, our glasses start at $40 for single vision glasses. So I mean, you can't, you can't really match that anywhere. So we really try to prevent someone from having vision issues by getting what they need.
3: Now, we all know as we get a little bit older that we might have some changes in our eyesight. And that is a little intimidating. Can you go over a couple of things that, that people should be aware of where they may see some things changing with their vision?
1: We suggest going to the eye doctor every year because anything can change at any time. And the incidence of vision loss as you know, our population gets older and they live a lot longer is going to grow. I think they say, like, By three times in the next 10 years or something, it's going to grow. So it's really going to be, it's an epidemic. And so if people are not, you know, getting this checked and not identifying it early enough, then there could be worse things that happen. So, or they they could lose their sight. So we suggest that people do that. The good thing is there's hope out there. There's so many things you can do to live your life the way you always have with vision loss and so that's what we really try to do with the program is really be able to you know give someone hope to say you know I was just on the phone with someone yesterday and they were losing their sight or their daughter I think was losing their sight at an older age and I said you know I know so many people that are successful that live on their own that do all the things that we all do that we take for granted every day and they're able to do all of those things they just probably need a little bit of training to do it a little bit of tools and Devices, but otherwise, you know, we're all on the same level playing field. So I think that's the great thing about it is that we're really able to it's identifiable. You know, it's something that we can we can address with you.
3: If people do have questions or concerns, how do they reach out to you? We do
1: have our new website up, Northeast Site dot org. You can go on there. We also are on Facebook as Northeast Site Services and on Instagram and all of that. Um, We also can be reached by phone at 570-693-3555 and anyone can call at any time and we do take referrals over the phone and, and can talk through any circumstances.
3: Kristen Boyle is the Vision Resource Manager at Northeast Site Services.
1: I started with this
0: agency Back last summer I was an intern here and I was really passionate about helping out here with their children's programming because I myself am visually impaired. So I just love the opportunity to help other children in the area adapt to living life with vision loss. And then I was hired here full time this past July after I graduated college to run their children's programming and also their new vision resource center for the community. where did you go to school? I went to school at St. Joseph's University down in Philadelphia. Tell me
3: a little bit about Uh, the work that you do with children. Obviously this is an issue that you yourself understand, so it's good for children to find somebody who can kind of relate to what they're going through. So just talk to me a little bit about your work with the kids.
0: Well, there's a couple different programs that we started here recently. There's our campsite program and Campsite, campsite junior program that are summer camps for children with vision loss that happen during our summer and they really take kids out into the community, give them different experiences they normally wouldn't have maybe, you know, gone horseback riding and to baseball games. They've learned to play adaptive games with vision loss. So it's really great opportunity for them to try new things and also to meet other children in the area who have vision loss. From that program, we've also expanded into doing what's called our Insight Kids Club, and these events have monthly programming for children of all ages to come and meet one another because vision loss is pretty rare for children, so it can be isolating at times. I myself was the only person in my whole school who was visually impaired, so I didn't know anyone growing up who was visually impaired. So I feel very strongly about connecting children from different schools and different counties who have vision loss and can relate to each other. So that's what our programming does each month they do something fun we had them baking they've gone and done volunteer work at blue chip they've gone to the zoo so it's always something different and it's always a way for them to see their friends each month And then finally, I do what's called a transition assistance program here. So that's for our high school students, preparing them for life after high school, getting ready for college, and also career prep. So we have them doing job shadowing. We did one about independent living skills um, and also self-advocacy. So we try to encompass a lot of different areas into our programming for our children.
3: When you were a kid, you said that there wasn't anybody in your family who had experienced sight loss the way that you did. How did you and your parents go forth and advocate for you as a young child?
0: I was very lucky to have parents who were such strong advocates for me. My mother is probably the most educated person about my condition. Yeah, you know, She's explaining to doctors about you know what she's read and everything. So I feel very fortunate. She's also a teacher, so she felt very strongly about... Um, pushing me in school to making sure that I had um, all the accommodations that were necessary for me to succeed. So I had large print materials. I had extended test time if I needed, if my reading took a little longer. And they really didn't treat me any differently. I think that was the biggest thing is that they wanted me to be successful and have the tools in place and make sure that I was connected with all the resources in the community that could help me.
3: And you went off to college, which I think under any circumstance, parents worry. Did your parents worry?
0: Yes. <laughs> I think um, my mother was most worried when I wanted to study abroad, and she actually let me did it. I don't know how I convinced her, but I did spend a semester in Italy. I think it's because one of my friends went with me, so she knew I wasn't there all alone. She even came to, that was the first time she, she crossed the ocean because she wanted to come make sure I was okay. But I think it's a hard thing when parents are dealing with a child who has a disability is to, you want them to be safe, but you also don't want to restrict them from doing what they want to do. So it's a tricky balance, but I was very fortunate that they let me leave the area to go to college and then also um, leave the country and have new experiences.
3: When you uh, meet with, with parents and children, I'm sure that there are some things right out of the gate that they're apprehensive about. And how do you tell them? I mean, your own story is really inspirational, and many people don't even study abroad on a regular basis. So how do you tell or talk to parents and children so that you tell them it's going to be okay.
0: Yeah, I try to use um, my own example, of course. And then we also offer a parent support group here that meets a couple times a year um, for parents that are involved with our children's programming. So I also like to connect families so they could be resources for each other. Um, And I feel very strongly about telling parents, you know, you don't have to go jump all in at once, but, you know, give one of our programming a try and, I think once the kids get out of their comfort zone, they love it and they come back with all these stories about, Mom, guess what I did today at camp or, you know, this is my new friend I met, she also has what I have. So it's really great to see when kids enter the program and then how they grow throughout the years. So I think parents are always very happy they took the chance to let their kids become involved here.
3: Who is eligible to use the services of your organization?
0: Anyone with a visual impairment of 20 over 70 acuity wise or um, 20 degree field loss. So um, we really encompass all different ages um, and you don't have to, there's no financial requirement. Anyone really who meets the visual requirements can become a client here with us.
3: When do you find the most rewarding part about your work?
0: I think it's when I... I meet with the kids and I teach them something new or a new way of doing something. Um, I think I love when I teach something to a child who's always been used to having someone else do it for them. Like I taught at one of our programs, I was teaching them how to like slice up, you know, cheese and apples by themselves. And some of the kids, the, their families are very well-meaning and they sometimes overhelp. So when the kids have that satisfaction, like wow, I did that all by myself, it's actually really great to see.
3: You also have in your facility, when you walk in a place where you have equipment and devices that can help people with visual impairment. Can you talk about maybe some of the advancements you've seen during your own lifetime that have made things a little easier for you?
0: Yeah, it's really great now having that center, our vision resource center, where anyone off the street can come in and see all of the adaptive technologies that are now available to help people with vision loss. Some that uh, I witnessed in my own lifetime have been like the iPhone and iPads. They have incredible technologies to help me zoom in on the screen to read things. Um, They also have a lot of apps that help you um, navigate and identify colors and money. Every day there's something new. There's even technology now where the camera can scan text and convert. It to speech and read you what something says in front of you. And you can do that from your phone or there's specialized devices that can do it for you too. So it's pretty incredible to see technology changing. There's also uh, even things there you wouldn't think of like measuring cups that are tactile and large print, um, stronger magnifiers than you can find in a store. There's also things to help you just label things around your house. If you were having trouble reading your recipes, you could record it with your voice and play it back later. There's also things to help you write a check Um, really it's so expansive just our whole goal is to have a place where people can come in and feel a sense of hope that even though their vision is fading there's devices and technologies out there that can help them
3: And what's the next daring thing you're going to do during your own life?
0: I would love to continue to travel, and I'm actually getting a second master's now to specialize in low vision therapy, and it's called um, vocational rehabilitation, so helping people lead independent lives with vision loss.
3: For more information, visit the website, www.northeastsite.org. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Mm
2: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories.